times. I don't know it will ever get to the bottom of that one. It's, uh, it's incredible, incredible story. <laughs> That's probably true, but it's such a cool ending with the new city of God and the, you know what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again and the resurrection. One of the most encouraging sections of any scripture are the last chapters of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it ends with a real word of hope, doesn't it? Well, good, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's a good good insight. Well, this week we're going to talk, we're on week nine of our Eat the Book series, and we're going to look at Ruth, part one. Now, you might be, a, you might think that that is strange, that we're doing one of the shortest books that we have covered in two parts, when we've done big, massive books in one part, but there's so much here. It's one of the coolest books in the Bible. How many of you, if I were to ask you, would put Ruth in your top Ten favorite books in all of the Bible? Most of you, many of you. How many of you would put it in kind of the top five of your favorite books in the Bible? Still some. How many of you would say, it is my absolute favorite book of the Bible? I know it's like kids, you're not supposed to pick your favorite one, but we all have them. So, uh, which is your favorite, if you would say, which is your favorite book? Junie, anybody else? Favorite book? Well, good. I know you have taught and and uh, led different groups through this book. Judy sends me devotionals from that she's written on this book. And so I, it's, I don't know if it's my favorite. It's up there. Ephesians is an incredible book. Um, you know, of course, the gospel according to John is, is incredible. It's hard to pick, but it's definitely in my top five for sure. One of my favorite books. Well, okay. Uh, every good, when it begins, every good story needs a good hero. And last week, we, uh, with the book of Judges, we, we learned that. When you think of the word hero, what images come to mind? Do you think of Superman, a man who is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound? If you watch a lot of TV in the 80s, maybe you think of the greatest American hero. You remember him? Uh, an ordinary hero who showed extraordinary heroism as he foiled the plans of cartoonish bad guys with less than perfect superpowers. Do you remember him? He never learned how to fly, and so he'd always crash and burn. And maybe you think of real-life heroes like Joan of Arc. In the 15th century, she turned the world upside down, saving the English through her valor in the Hundred Years' War. Maybe... You think of Guitar Hero, a video game for people with a lack of foresight to realize that it takes as long to learn how to play Guitar Hero as it does to actually learn how to play the guitar. I note here that this is usually followed by a counseling session with me where said young man is amazed that he cannot find a girlfriend. (laughs) Now, if you're reading your Bible regularly, and I hope that you are, Uh, Maybe you think of Ruth, the title character in the book of Ruth, who we'll be looking at this morning. She was the ultimate outsider, a Moabite, who clung to Naomi and Naomi's God and was redeemed. Maybe you think about Boaz, the heroic, worthy man who fell in love with Ruth, married her, gave her a son and an inheritance in the land of Israel. 
Maybe you think of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, who demonstrated heroic love towards Ruth. Last week we said that Judges was a book filled with flawed heroes. Judges who were raised up by God to deliver faithless people, only to succumb to their own spiritual blindness and sin. You remember that theme? How we saw spiritual blindness in all the people? It was kind of a depressing picture of how far Israel had fallen from the glorious days of Moses and Joshua. Was God still at work even during the time of Judges? Would he still provide a redeemer, a hero for his people in spite of their sin? Ruth answers that question with a resounding yes. God was absolutely still at work in the lives of his people even during the darkest days of the period of the Judges. In fact, God was not only working in the lives of his people, he was working in the lives of outsiders and in the process redefining what it means to be an insider, one of God's people. In many ways, Ruth is the silver lining to the book of Judges. While it may seem like sin is out of control all around us in the world, God's grace is always at work. Sometimes in the lives of people that we least expect. People like Ruth. That's the story. Let's take a closer look. So in the historical background, the events of the book of Ruth take place during the period of the Judges, that time uh, before Israel had a king. You remember that refrain over and over in the book of Judges. At that time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God raised up judges who were sinful, who were imperfect, who delivered the people temporarily, gave them temporary rest, But then the people went right back to their sin. This story, the story of Ruth, takes place during that time of the judges. Ruth 1.1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So this takes place during the time when the judges ruled. As with Joshua and Judges, the author of Ruth remains anonymous. Among the suggested suggested authors are Samuel, Solomon, maybe an anonymous female author, or an anonymous male author uh, sometime during the time of David. You'll remember how the, the book... Somebody tell me, if you know Ruth, how the book of Ruth ends. You remember? Yeah, it starts the genealogy leading up to David. So it's possible that some anonymous author writing during the time of David wrote it in order to sort of flesh out and explain the, I guess, the origin story of King David, who was one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. So we don't know exactly who wrote it. All right, literary analysis. What happens in the book? Ruth is a short story but it is one of the most skillfully constructed short stories in the whole Bible. The genre is history, or we might say covenant history, as it advances the story of how God was going to fulfill his covenant promises to the people of Israel. All history, if you read history, is selective history. You'll never find a 
any kind of book or biography of any great person that literally tells every event that happened every day of that person's life or in the nation or in the world. It has to be selective. And so this selective history is written with an idea of advancing the story of God fulfilling his promises among the people of, of Israel. And so that's why we call it history, but more specifically, covenant history. Who can tell me what the covenant was? Can you remember what that is? We've talked about it a little bit in this class. What was the covenant? Say, say it, Clarence. Yes, that was. What was the substance of that covenant? Right, God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. He cuts the animals in half, and then instead of forcing Abraham to walk through, saying, hey, you're going to get cut in half if you break this covenant, who walks through? God. God walks through. Now, was God ever metaphorically cut in half as the result of our covenant breaking? Yes, Jesus died on the cross. Again, not literally cut in half. It's symbolic. But Jesus died as a covenant breaker, even though he was the only covenant keeper who ever lived in order to substitute for covenant breakers like us. Isn't that cool? And all of this takes place against the backdrop of the history of the people of Israel. And the question always in their mind is in the darkest days... Is God going to be faithful? Is God going to keep these promises? Can we really believe that what God is saying is true? And the book of Ruth answers that question. Remember in Genesis, God promised Adam and Eve that he would give them a son who would crush Satan's head. That's in Genesis 3.15. He promised Abraham that he would give him a seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This story is about how God fulfilled his promise to his covenant people, giving them a redeemer who would be a blessing not only to Israel, but a blessing to all the nations. There are four acts in the book of Ruth corresponding to the four chapters of the book. This morning we're going to look at the first two acts of the story. In each act, the story has individual scenes that move the plot along from emptiness to fullness from famine to harvest, from namelessness and anonymity to recognition and inclusion. There are rich, nuanced characters in the book of Ruth. The main characters aren't static. They grow. They change. They actually get closer to God as he guides the action of the story. So, what we're going to do today, not tonight, is walk briskly through the first acts of the story of Ruth. Along the way, we're going to see some of the great theological themes of the book and hopefully how those same themes are echoed in our own lives and find their fulfillment in Jesus. So, are you ready for some race walking? Okay, here we go. No race walking fans? It always makes me laugh. All right, act one begins in Moab. Immediately, we're to wonder... Why would we find the Israelites in Moab? Is that a good question? Why would that be a good question? Who here knows their Old Testament? Tell me a little bit about Moab and why it might be strange to find Israelites in Moab. 
Yes, the Moabites were the enemies of the people of Israel. In fact, God had specifically cursed the Moabites because they, they were interfering with Israel's ability to exodus the Egypt and to find the promised land. So they were enemies of God's people. The text tells us that there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his two wives and his, he and his wife and his two sons. Almost as quickly as we meet Elimelech and his two sojourning sons, Malon and Kilion, we learn that all three men have died. With no one to provide for them, three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, set out on a journey back to Bethlehem. On the way back to Bethlehem, Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law to go home to Moab. After initially refusing, Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, agrees. Ruth, however, steadfastly refuses delivering this classic speech, probably one of the most uh, famous speeches in the book of Ruth. Somebody read Ruth 1, 16 and 17. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I just even have goosebumps uh, reading it. How many of you have heard that read at a wedding or maybe had that read at your own wedding? Anyone? Saying. Saying? Good? Good? We have, it, uh, we have it sort of a shortened version um, in our house, you know, like as a picture in our house. Such an important thing. Now, Naomi is so moved that she stops talking to Ruth. Somebody read Ruth 1.18. That's it. No swelling music, no hugging, no kissing, no tears, just awkward silent. That's why nobody reads Ruth 1.18 at their wedding. You always stop at verse 17. After Ruth's moving speech and Naomi's chilly response, the two women continue on to Bethlehem. Upon returning home, Naomi immediately lets the women of Bethlehem know that this is not a happy homecoming. Somebody read verses 20 and 21. Somebody read. Somebody over here, read. So not, not a, uh, a good beginning here for old Naomi. Let's see what happens. Now, before we move on to Act 2, you have to know that in the Bible, uh, the characters are as significant as the plot. Now, why would I say that? Because God works out his big plan of redemption, buying us back from slavery to sin through people. Often the, the changes that happen in us are as significant as the changes that happen in the world around us. 
So people matter to God, and so the characters in these stories are very important. Here's Elimelech, our first main character. He's Naomi's husband who dies in the very first scene. His name means, my God is king. Eli Melech. Now, does Elimelech act like God was his king? Is there any irony there? What do you think? He married a foreign foreign woman, and where is he when the story starts? Yeah, he's in Moab, right? So he does not act like God is his king at all. So the author of Ruth uses this as a bit of irony to point out that he's not acting like God is his king. Now, what did Elimelech do when famine came upon Bethlehem? We said this, he left. The double irony is that Bethlehem means house of bread. If God is your king, why would you leave the house of bread during a famine? It makes no sense. Now, considering this place, this story takes place during the time of Judges, what should Elimelech have done when the famine came upon the land? What do you think? He should have prayed. He should have cried out to God for deliverance. He should have said, Lord, raise up a redeemer. Lord, allow me to be the redeemer to to deliver the people. But instead, he turned tail and he ran. Now, what about about Naomi? Her name means pleasant, which is significant because upon returning to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. Her bitterness is shown in her indifference to Ruth's impassioned speech. Again, she doesn't react to it at all, except to give Ruth the silent treatment. What about Ruth? Well, she was Naomi's daughter-in-law. She was a Moabite. That's very significant. Significant. She was loyal to Naomi. That's important. What else? She was also loyal to Naomi's God. In this passage, Naomi refers to God as both Yahweh, which is the Lord's covenant name, a name that expressed the special bond uh, with his people, and Shaddai, which means almighty. Ruth, on the other hand, uses the word Yahweh exclusively. It is exceedingly noteworthy that a Moabite would use the name Yahweh as opposed to the more generic terms El, which means God, or Shaddai, uh, which means Almighty, or any of the other uh, number of generic names that she could have used to describe the Lord God. So she's referring to the God of Israel by his covenant name. Very significant. Now, one thing that we don't know about Ruth is what she looked like. Now, why do you think people assume that Ruth was a beautiful woman? In every painting from the Renaissance that depicts Ruth, she's portrayed as an extraordinarily beautiful woman, and yet the text doesn't tell us what she looks like. Why do you think that's the case? Because, say again? Because Boaz was attracted to her? Good, yep, noticed by Boaz. Any other reasons? Yep. Yep, that's true. Boaz says, hey, 
there's going to be guys out there, you know, don't, don't get in with them. That's, that's good. With her character. I think that that's a good point. Uh, because she's such a beautiful person in the book of Ruth that it would be hard for us to imagine this sort of haggard, you know, uh, you know ugly-looking person. She, it just There's a radiance in her heart that really shines out through the whole, whole story. So we don't know what she looks like exactly, but we do know that she was a beautiful person. Now, she may have been physically beautiful too, but the text simply doesn't say it. Um, I've no- noted here, I think it was her character that makes her beautiful. She was a beautiful person. And so when we see her in our mind's eye, we see the beauty of her character. So it's, it's tough to imagine her as being an ugly person. Now, what about Orpah? She was Naomi's other daughter-in-law, also a Moabite. Uh, she doesn't have any direct dialogue in the book other than the shared dialogue that she has with Ruth. After Naomi tells her to go back home a second time, she goes and we never hear from her again. Now, here's a random note. Orpah was Oprah Winfrey's original name. It was hard for her family members to pronounce the name Orpah, so they started calling her Oprah, which is why you join Oprah's book club and not Orpah's book club. Just a little bit of a note. All right, what about Malon and Kilion? Well, they were husbands of uh, Ruth and Orpah. Their main function in the story is to die. Okay, so they're kind of like the extras on Star Trek. Star Trek, they beam down to Moab, but they never beam back up. You know, they're the red shirts on Star Trek. We never see those guys again. All right, theological themes from Acts chapter 1. Theme 1 is forgetting our names. This event, the event that uh, set the story in motion was Elimelech's journey to Moab. By forgetting his name, God is king, Elimelech tried to be his own king. Just like the people of the book of Judges, he did what was right in his own eyes without remembering God's faithfulness to his family and to his people. Often, we forget our names too. As Christians, we have been given the name of Jesus Christ. By taking that name, we are defined by the saving grace of Jesus. And yet, like Elimelech and his family, we often wander down roads of unfaithfulness. We try to be our own kings and end up leaving the house of bread to the only place where we will find the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give us. Though we deserve the fate of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, their sin is no greater than ours, God is gracious. When Elimelech left Bethlehem so that, he might, that his will might be done in Moab, Jesus Christ left heaven to come to a manger in Bethlehem, leaving heaven to sojourn on this earth so that all of us who wander away from God can find our way back home. All right, next theme. A grace that grasps hold of us. Ruth's speech at the end of chapter 1 shows us that the love of God grasps hold of us and doesn't let us go. 
Naomi saw things from a purely human perspective. She looked at her life and she saw all that she had lost. But what she didn't see was that God's grace was standing right in front of her in the person of Ruth, a Moabite woman who refused to go home. Ruth committed to being with Naomi in life, taking her people and her God. Ruth committed to being with Naomi in death and even beyond death in burial. That's an important theme in the Old Testament because where you were buried said something about the deepest commitments of who you are. Where was Abraham buried? You remember this? He was buried in the promised land. He's saying, even though we've not yet obtained this, this is where I will be buried. Where a person is buried is very significant. So he says, I will even be buried with you, Ruth says. Okay, this expression of covenant faithfulness points us to God's expression of covenant faithfulness, which reached its fullest expression in Jesus. Jesus clung to us in this life, becoming a man. He clung to us in death, dying on a cross. And because Jesus clung to us in life and in death, we will cling to him at the resurrection. At the last day, we will join him rising from the dead, just like he did, going to be with the Lord in body and in soul, just as he is now. How amazing is that? This is truly a love that will not let us go, which is envisioned and foretold in this beautiful story of Ruth, who refuses to let go of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Isn't it ironic that we think of Ruth's speech in Ruth 1 as one of the most powerful speeches in the Bible? It's really one of the weakest. She's saying, I will give up everything, all, all the glories of the world, to gain the imperfect glories of God's people. She could do that because she knew that having been grasped by God's love, she will inherit something much greater than this world has to offer. It's the ultimate word of humility, of giving her life over to God and his people. Ruth 2 continues the story by employing a literary device known as a chiasm. Have you ever heard that word? Chiasm, some of you? Uh, it's meant to draw attention to the central scene in the second act. Rather than describe it, I'll show it to you on the screen there. Do you see it? So in verse 1 and verse 23, we have kind of A and A1. We have the narrator. Then in the next part of the chiasm, we have Ruth and Naomi. The next central part, we have the narrator. Then we have Boaz and the harvesters. And what's the central section? Boaz and Ruth. Now, again, this is kind of an ancient literary device which writers would use in order to draw a focus or attention to the main part of the story, the part that we're really supposed to, to think of and focus on as we read chapter 2. Some of the greatest literary artists in the history of literature are writers of the Bible. These are not just sort of uh, random people who sort of jotted, you know, incomplete stories down. These are real brilliant artisans who wrote these stories. 
Act 2 begins with the narrator introducing us to Boaz, a worthy man of Israel. After piquing our curiosity about Boaz, the scene quickly shifts to Ruth and Naomi. Ruth was determined to go and glean in the fields, while Naomi simply replies, Go, my daughter. It seems like Naomi has, at this point in the story, given up on life. Should God's people ever give up on life? Why or why not? I'm seeing a lot of head-shaking no. Why not? He created us for a reason. He's still in charge. He has plans for us. Good plans. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? Why should we not just be like Naomi and say, well, hey, listen, we went to Moab. It didn't work out. I'm done. Because God didn't give up on us. And remember, one of the first themes from Act 1 is forgetting our name. And so when we give up on life, we're forgetting our name. We're forgetting Jesus who died on the cross to give us new life, everlasting life, but also, as I happened to read in my uh, Bible reading this morning, abundant life, fulfilled life. We have a purpose and a hope because of Jesus. So don't forget your name. Ruth then goes out to the fields and happens, wink, wink, to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. This seemingly chance encounter is later to be revealed as anything but chance. Boaz greets his workers, they greet him, and then he asks the young man in charge of the reapers about Ruth. When Boaz is introduced to Ruth, we see clearly that Israelite identity was defined in terms of relationships. Boaz didn't ask, who is this young woman? He asked, whose young woman is this? In other words, to whom is she related? We in the West uh, have a little bit more of an individualistic view of life, but in the ancient Near East and in terms of the scriptures, they had... Uh, you are the sum total of your relationships. That's why it was so uh, dangerous to be a widow or an orphan because you don't have relationships. You don't have people to take care of you. So keep that in mind as we listen to this story of these two widows who seemingly have no relationships. The young man in charge of the reapers answered, she is the, the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Again, it's all about relationships. Nobody cares about her name. Her significance is determined by her relationship to Naomi. So right now, she has a very tenuous relationship with Naomi, and she doesn't have a name. Okay? Keep this in mind as we tell the story. In the central scene of Act 2, Boaz tells Ruth to stay with his young women. He promises that by doing so, she would be protected from the other men who may assault her. Boaz also promises to give her water to drink and later invites her to a meal. Act 2 closes with Ruth's return back to Naomi's house. Naomi now recognizes that it is God who is providing food for them. The narrator closes with this sentence, 
and she lived with her mother-in-law. Why? Why do you think it might, uh, it's a little cliffhanger of a statement. Why would it end that way? She lived with her mother-in-law. Any ideas? Well, I thought it's because Ruth and Naomi still have one unmet need. They have food, but they're both widows, and Ruth needs a husband to be her full-time goel, the man who would protect and provide for her. We'll talk about the goels and the redeemers a little bit later. But that's right now, she's missing that. So she's at home with her mother-in-law. All right, characters from Act 2. Remember, characters are very important in this story. Characters. Boaz. His name means with strength, which also relates to the text's description of him as a worthy man. In the context, the Hebrew, Ish Gabor Chayil, means a prominent man or a man with some standing in the community. It draws us in because at this point, we don't know exactly what it means when the narrator tells us that he's a worthy man. What does that mean? So it draws us in. Now, here's a note on reading the Bible. Pay attention to the first thing that someone says when they're introduced in the Bible. A person's first words in any Bible story are usually very significant. What does Boaz say? What is the first thing he says? Somebody read Ruth 2, verse 4. Speak, speak up, say it louder. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. And so is that a good sign? Yes, that is a very good sign. Now, I'll go at one step further. Do you remember what his workers say to him? And the Lord also be with you. So again, we're getting these, these first words are ind indicating that Boaz has a relationship with God he also has a good relationship with his workers. I think it's fair to say that it's hard to claim that you do have a good relationship with God if you don't have a good relationship with the people who work for you. If the people who work under you and around you think that you're a jerk and yet you claim to have a right relationship with God, that may poke some holes in that theory of yours. Maybe you don't have a good relationship with God. So anyway, that's a good sign. Whereas Naomi responded with coldness to Ruth's great speech in Ruth chapter, in Ruth chapter 1, here in this chapter, Boaz responds to Ruth with great warmth. It highlights the fact that Naomi didn't say anything like this. Somebody read chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Hmm. Now, if uh, you are having uh, a wedding reception and people are standing up to make speeches, do you want Boaz's speech or do you want Naomi's speech? <laughs> she didn't say anything. But here Boaz 
this worthy man of Israel makes this beautiful, amazing speech. So great. Boaz was a praying man. In verse 12, he prays that the Lord will take care of Ruth. Note, sometimes we're the, we are the answer to our own prayers. That's what Boaz was for Ruth. At the end of the chapter, Naomi says that Boaz is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. All right, Ruth. Uh, what is Ruth's name? Just Ruth? If you have your Bible, look and see what it says. What is Ruth's name according to Ruth chapter 2? Open your Bible and read it. See what it says. What's her name? Yes, Ruth. That's. It, I am not sure exactly what her Hebrew name means. It might mean, it means friend or companion. But over and over again in the story, she's recall, called Ruth the Moabite. She's not simply Ruth. She's Ruth the Moabite. She's an outsider. She doesn't belong to the people of Israel. There's something wrong with her. In this section, we see Ruth's work ethic. She went out to glean in the fields while Naomi stayed home. Her work ethic was fueled by faith. She worked as hard as she did, braving a perilous work environment. Remembering that, that, remember that warning about sexual assault? She might get assaulted in that field. She did it because she trusted God to take care of her family. Remember, Ruth didn't have a goel, a kinsman redeemer who would protect her. The question is, would Boaz be her goel? Or is God her goel? Is God her redeemer? Is God the one that will protect her from harm, will provide for her, give her rest, or invite her, as Boaz did, to the feast? Naomi. Naomi undergoes a major transformation in Act 2. In Act 1, Naomi was convinced that the Lord had stopped showing covenant faithfulness to her. Now she proclaims God's covenant faithfulness. Naomi's calamity has turned into hope. All right, some theological themes from Act 2. The Redeemer sees the foreigner. The Redeemer sees the foreigner. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, or Goel, noticed Ruth the Moabite when no one else did. Somebody read verse 5. Right, so so far in the story, almost no one has noticed Naomi, uh, noticed Ruth at all, and even Naomi, uh, when she gives this beautiful impassioned speech, just kind of keeps walking and ignores her. Right, Boaz doesn't because the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, sees the foreigner. At first, it seems like a rather unremarkable question, but think about what's going on here. This is one of the most notable citizens of Bethlehem, a landowner and a worthy man, noticing one of the least notable people in Bethlehem. Now, here's a parallel, modern parallel. In those days, gleaners were essentially immigrant day laborers. Gleaners were largely ignored. They were largely invisible. It's remarkable that someone like Boaz would take notice of someone like Ruth. 
imagine if you, uh, back where we grew up in California, uh, outside of every Home Depot, there was a large group of Mexican men who you could hire to come to your house to do work. They would you know, help you build a retaining wall, they might help you do some gardening, and you would hire them for the day, pay them a set wage, and then they would just sort of disappear. Imagine if you hired one of those men and then came back the next, way, next week and said, Juan, it's so good to see you. How are you? How are your family? People don't act like that. These gleaners, which is what Ruth was, were absolutely disposable in the culture. Invisible. Nobody cared about them at all. Boaz cared about Ruth. This picture of Boaz, the redeemer who sees the, the foreigner, the outsider, is also a picture of our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Our redeemer, Jesus Christ, takes notice not only of the best and the brightest, but also the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Jesus cares about invisible people. Our culture celebrates rich and powerful people. Jesus celebrates poor and powerless people. Somebody read to me from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30. Amen. Amen. Like Boaz, who saw Ruth and initiated a life, a saving relationship with her, our Redeemer sees us and initiates a life-giving relationship with us. It's sort of like the story of Zacchaeus. You remember him, the wee little man up in the tree? Jesus sees him and he says, come on down, Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your house today. No, he's, up in a, he's literally up in a tree. That's how invisible he is. And yet Jesus takes notice of him. Awesome. All right. So the Redeemer sees the foreigner. That's our first theological theme in Act 2. The second one we hinted at already is that the Redeemer saves the foreigner. Not only does the Redeemer see the foreigner, the Redeemer saves her. Boaz offered to protect Ruth. Ruth was gleaning alone, so he offered her a place among his servants he also warned his young men not to touch her in verses 8 and 9. Not only did Boaz save this foreign woman from harm, he also invited her to his table. This was unheard of in the ancient world. Boaz was a landowner. Ruth was a day laborer. This sort of thing absolutely was not done. I've been reading in my Bible this, where Jesus says to the, uh, the wealthy Pharisees, when you throw a meal, don't just invite the, the most important, powerful people. Invite the poorest people. Invite the people who have nothing. Well, why did he say that? Because their tendency was to invite the most powerful, rich people, people who could, they could make connections with, people who would invite them in return. You don't invite someone who's lower than you because that person can't return the favor, right? But this is, this is what Boaz did with Ruth. 
Not only did Boaz feed Ruth, she ate until she was satisfied. Very important detail. Again, unheard of in the ancient world. In the ancient world, people did not eat until they were satisfied. They ate until they ran out of food. There's no such thing as eating until you're satisfied in the ancient world. It's a subsistence culture, especially when there's a famine just over the hill in Moab. Just as Boaz recognized the spiritual significance of his protection of Ruth, seeing her and, and acting as God's agent, giving her divine protection that she sought in Israel, so also inviting Ruth to his table to eat bread and drink wine has spiritual significance. This is a picture of what our Redeemer Jesus Christ did for us. He invites us to God's table, to God's feast. The meal of bread and wine that Ruth enjoyed was a foretaste of the provision that Boaz would provide for her in the upcoming chapters. By giving us the Lord's Supper, Jesus, our Redeemer, has given us a foretaste of the provision that God has in store for us. One day we will be seated at the Lord's table, not eating a tiny morsel of bread or drinking a little cup of wine or juice but we will be feasting on the bread of life, drinking the cup of the new covenant, the cup of celebration and joy and peace with Jesus Christ, experiencing the spiritual satisfaction that was purchased by Jesus' body, which is given for us, and his blood, which was shed for us. Okay, next uh, theme. So the Redeemer, what's the first one? He sees the foreigner... He then saves, and now we see that the Redeemer sustains the foreigner. It's almost Trinitarian. It's like God had a plan. Boaz not only gave Ruth that one meal, he sustained her in an ongoing way. He instructed the harvesters to purposely drop grain for Ruth to pick up. They did, and at the end of the day, she took home two weeks' worth of food. An ephah of barley, which is roughly 30 to 40 pounds of grain. That is how Boaz sustained Ruth. But there's yet another hint about how Jesus, our Redeemer, sustains us. In Israel, the end of the barley and wheat harvests were mentioned in verse 23, was marked by a particular celebration, the celebration of of Pentecost. Flash forward to Acts chapter 2, the most famous celebration of Pentecost when God sent his Holy Spirit to sustain the church. Listen to Jesus' words from John chapter 16. See if you can hear echoes of Ruth. Somebody read those. Keep going. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Mm. So Jesus didn't just see us, save us, and then leave us to our own devices. Just like Boaz sustained Ruth, 
our Redeemer sustains us by giving us the Holy Spirit. How, how, does, how does the Holy Spirit sustain us? What are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit sustains you? Never leaves us, never forsakes us. Gives us strength when we have none. Mm-hmm. Good. Corrects us when we go off the path. Good. What, what are some other ways? Yeah, wisdom to read the word, interprets the word. Deb, what do you think? He prays for us. So all of these ways that God sustains us are possible because of the Holy Spirit. Just as Boaz sustained Ruth at Pentecost, so also Jesus, our Redeemer, sustained us at Pentecost and continues to do so every day of our lives, giving us courage, giving us joy, giving us wisdom, giving us insight. All those fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned in the book of Galatians are ours because the Redeemer sustains His people. When we see that our God is a God who clings to His people who have wandered away from Him, who sees the foreigner, saves the foreigner, and sustains the foreigner, all we can do is respond to God's grace by living lives that are so full of joy and compassion that it can be said that our whole lives are spiritual acts of worship. Now, the best part is that we are just getting started talking about God's grace in the book of Ruth. Next week, we'll have part two. We'll look at Act 3, Act 4, Chapter 3, and Chapter 4, where the God who saved us gives us an everlasting name. Any questions? Ruth? Insights? Thoughts? We had some good ones last week. Deb? Oh, that's, and that's very possible for sure. I think that in order, I think what the narrator is doing is, remember we said that these characters aren't static. They aren't uh, people who are just like, well, here's this person, they're a hero, and they have no development or no anything else. So what I think what, what the narrator is doing is showing us the spiritual development of Naomi. She starts out with no hope, she starts out, she's basically given up. Uh, that whole section where Ruth says, hey, do you want me to go out in the, in the field? I'll glean, I'll work. Uh, Naomi just says, go, my daughter. It's even shorter in Hebrew. It's like two words, just basically go. And uh, she doesn't say, yeah, I'll come with you. Hey, yeah, that'll be great. Just nothing. She, she's basically, I don't want to say dead on the inside, but she's deeply, deeply wounded um, now, one of the things that we learn in Scripture is that every single person in the Bible and in life beyond the Bible, every single person is a sinner, and every single person has been sinned against. So it's very possible that 
at this point in the story, Naomi is a firm mixture of those two things. Uh, whether or not she had um, an objection to going to Moab, there's not a lot, a lot of indication that she was pining away for returning to Israel. They were firmly established in the nation of, of Moab. And so they could have gone home at any time. Hey, hey the, it's all over. We could return home. But they didn't. Their sons married Moabites. Uh, they didn't, I mean, they maybe could have gone back to Israel and found some wives for them or something. So she, at this point in the story, is kind of on shaky ground. But remember, we've only done Act 1 and 2. There's four acts to the story. And just like Naomi, that, and just like all of us, the final chapter is not yet written. You know, we have many people in our lives. I know I have friends and family members in my own life who do not know the Lord, who are not walking with Jesus. Maybe they were, maybe they stopped. It's not over till it's over. And God is still writing the story of his people. Now, does that mean that all of our loved ones who don't believe will come to faith? I can't promise you that. God doesn't promise that. But what he does promise is we can trust him and he loves us and he's faithful and he answers prayers and it's not over until it's over. Any other thoughts? Book, Book of Ruth. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point, is that she refers to her as her daughter. And that's a little bit of, as we see our way through the book, that's a little glimpse of hope. It's a little glimpse of kind of foreshadowing that this is not another Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion situation. She has little glimpses of understanding and hope and grace that are going to come to full fruition toward the end of the book. Good observation. Yes? Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, but yeah, that's certainly true because uh, Acts chapter 2 is, uh, in many ways, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the, big, as the catalyst to bring the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the miracle of Pentecost is everyone heard the word spoken in their own language. So that's certainly that theme of covenant inclusion for natural outsiders or ethnic outsiders is definitely at play in the book of Ruth. That's another great connection. Mm -hmm. Good. Any other thoughts? It's about 945, so we probably should wrap it up. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and, um, and we'll see you back here next week for Ruth Part 2. If you don't come back, you'll never know how the story ends, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that there, there are not always happy endings in life. 
but ultimately there is a happy ending in the life to come. We thank you that you are a redeemer who sees us, you know us, you save us, you take care of us always. We thank you, Father, for adopting us in your family. We thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. We thank you, Spirit, for sustaining us every step of every day. Lord, watch over all of us and be with us as we worship. Prepare our hearts to sing and pray. Give us great joy in our salvation, even as we consider the story of Nehemiah. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you in the worship service.